Well, good morning, Community Bible Church. It is great to be here. This is the first time I've been in your new space. Um, many times been out to the, the school and uh, where every had, everyone had to set up everything in the morning and take everything down in the afternoon. And now you have your own space and it's a beautiful space. I got onto your YouTube page and I saw this beautiful background. I wonder if you'd brought in Joanna Gaines to design your church. It was beautiful. It looks beautiful. And I just want to encourage you this morning, Community Bible Church, your community needs you. You're here for a purpose. And I know that you know that. And I'm so excited for you to be in this space. And I'm always looking forward to getting that call from Joel to come out uh, in the summertime and to preach to Community Bible Church. So it's good to be here this morning. I understand this morning that on the back end of all of this, I'm competing against apple pie. Am I right? So at the end of this is apple pie. So if you start looking at me and you look really hungry, I'm just going to stop because I understand that on the back end of this that there's apple pie. And if you're streaming this morning, if you're watching us online, I just want to tell you there's still time to get here before that apple pie is served. So you can drive from your house, you could be here, you might miss the sermon, but you'll be here at the end for apple pie, so hopefully you can make it for that. Nothing that builds community like apple pie, right? Mm -hmm. Well, our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, and you can turn in your Bibles to that passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Again you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that we can be here at Community Bible Church. Father, thank you that we can be part of the universal church that today is praising your name and glorifying the God of the universe who made us and who sent his son to die on the cross for us. Father, thank you that we can be here together in community with one another on the basis of the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross to take the stain of sin away. And Father, this morning I pray that as we look into your word, may your Holy Spirit illuminate our minds and drive us to action to glorify your name. We pray these things in your name, Father. We love you. Amen. Well, of course, we're in the series, You Have Heard It Said. This series is dealing with Matthew chapter 5 and the most famous sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is delivering this sermon, and if I would try to distill the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount, I might find the point in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Look down there if you would. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, Jesus said this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that for a moment. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were rule creators and they were rule followers. If you were trying to be a scribe or a Pharisee, you were trying to live up to a very high standard of legalistic conduct. There were rules and there were rules about rules and there were rules about making rules and breaking rules. Your life was all about trying to meet a high standard. And yet, what did Jesus say? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of this already unattainable standard of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have deflated the crowd because they must have thought, we can't even attain to the standard of the scribes and the Pharisees, let alone exceed it. How in the world can we make this work? Look at chapter 5 and verse 48. Jesus goes one step further. He says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You mentioned the game of golf. I played golf yesterday with my son and my daughter. Unless you hit the ball perfectly, it seems that that ball doesn't go exactly where you want it. Inevitably, during a game of golf, um, my son might mishit the ball a couple of times. I will mishit it almost every time. The standard of being perfect in a round of golf, it's just never going to happen. So think when Jesus tells the crowd, unless your righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, an unattainable standard, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he takes it one step further and says, unless you are perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He's telling them the standard that you have to meet is unattainable. The standard applies to us as well. How can we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? How can we be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect? It sets up a real problem for us, doesn't it? If we can't be perfect. Paul said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He says in Romans chapter 6, There is none righteous, not even one. So wait a second, I'm supposed to be perfect, but I can't be perfect. My righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, but I can't even reach that standard. There's none righteous, all have sinned. We have a real problem on our hands. So what's the answer to the problem. Turn in your Bibles very quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. The Apostle Paul speaking to those in Corinth says, for our sake 
He, speaking of Christ, made, or God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sends Jesus Christ to this earth who was perfect in every way. Jesus didn't have to meet the standard. Jesus was the standard. He was the perfect, sinless Son of God. He was the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. He was perfect. He was the standard. And Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus went to the cross to take our sins upon himself, suffer the wrath of God. And why did he do that? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, we could never attain to the standard, but Christ could. Christ could never sin. He was perfect. So he took our sins upon himself so that in his sacrifice, when we become followers of Christ, we can attain to the righteousness of God. Theologians call this double imputation. My sin is imputed to Christ who knew no sin. His righteousness is imputed to me who could not be perfect. What a beautiful thing. Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, you must be perfect, but you can't be. Paul says, and this is why Paul, after going through a, a theological section in his letter to the Romans, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, because of our sin, Romans said, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. Paul says, as a result of what Christ has done, we were condemned before, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness imputed for, uh, to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of us were spiritually on death row, and now we're no longer condemned. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus Christ has provided us a way where there was no way. We could never meet the standard that Jesus is espousing in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, here's the problem that Jesus is addressing today. The scribes and the Pharisees had established their own self-righteous standard of conduct. But while they established that unreasonably high standard of conduct, in doing that, they were failing to fulfill the law of God. They couldn't do it. Look at Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. Jesus addresses the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1, and he says this to them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They were saying, hey, you're supposed to wash your hands. If you don't wash your hands, you're breaking the law. Why do you allow your disciples to do that? How many times did they have to get beaten down by Jesus when they asked him questions and then he had to bring them to reality? 
He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? They must have thought, What? What are you talking about? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells the father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. In other words, I'm going to neglect you, my father and my mother, when you have a need, and I'm going to give that money to the temple. He says, why are you doing that? In doing so, you're breaking the law. He says, but I say to you, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We don't want to be like the Pharisees, where our words sound right, but our hearts are far from our Savior. So in this sermon, Jesus sets out to demonstrate what the law required and to establish that, humanly speaking, it is utterly impossible to meet the requirements of the law. Now, this passage where Jesus preaches about vows and oaths is the fourth of six times in this sermon where Jesus uses this formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Let's look at that in Matthew chapter 5. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at the times that Jesus uses this formula. First, he speaks of anger in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, you will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to a hell of fire. In regard to lust, he says in verse 27 of chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Of divorce, he said in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And let's skip over the verses on oaths. We'll be coming back to that. Go to verse 38, speaking of retaliation. This is the fifth time that Jesus uses this formula. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And then finally, the sixth time that Jesus uses this formula in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 43, talking about loving your enemies. He says, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Alfred Plummer in his exegetical commentary said this, The fourth illustration is on the subject of oaths and it is more like the passage on divorce than on murder and adultery. In the cases of murder and adultery, Christ interprets the law and shows how much more it covers than the rabbis supposed. In the cases of divorce and oaths, Christ simply opposes the Jewish tradition. Let me explain to you what he's saying there. For example, when he says about adultery, you've said you should not commit adultery. But he says, you're not taking it far enough, scribes and Pharisees. It's not just one who physically commits adultery with another woman. What about just in your heart having lustful intent? That is enough to violate the law. So what he was saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, you're taking the law only this far. You should take it this far. You're not going nearly far enough. But in the instances of divorce and the taking of oaths, what he's saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, you totally misunderstand what's going on here. Not only are you not applying the law correctly, you're actually misapplying the law. You're missing the entire point of the law. And so he's trying to point out their error to them. So here's what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. He castigates the scribes and the Pharisees because they were, and I like to call them, oath-taking, vow-making liars. Now think about a contradiction in terms, right? They say some of the contradictions in terms in the English language is like military intelligence, right? Um, Oath-taking, vow-making liars. You're making vows to God, but you're lying to God when you make them. You're taking oaths swearing to tell the truth when you're intending to lie. You are a bunch of oath-making, vow-taking liars. So a vow is when you make a vow to God. You say, God, as you are my witness, I am going to do this for you. Have you ever made a vow to God? Paul made many vows in the New Testament you can read about. Uh, A famous vow in the Old Testament would be uh, when when Samson made a vow. You hear about the Nazarite vow in the New Testament, making a vow to God. An oath is when you go to court or when you're going to have a contract and you raise your right hand and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Many times I would be in a deposition when I was practicing law and the court reporter would ask the witness to raise their right hand and the witness would be all befuddled because they were nervous in this new situation and they would go like this and I would say, your other right hand. Right? Or they go into court and they're shaking as they're taking the oath and some judges still made people put their hands on the Bible as they took an oath to God. They were swearing to tell the truth. Jesus here is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, you've gotten it all wrong. You're misapplying the law. You're missing the point. And unless you're 
perfect, then you're guilty of the whole law. This is the problem that they set up. I'll never forget trying a case, and sometimes in the cases that I tried um, on the other side, uh, because these were really big cases, new attorneys didn't get much opportunity to be to be involved, to participate, because the stakes were too high. But every once in a while, um, a lawyer on the other side would let a young lawyer come in and just do a small part where they knew they couldn't mess up the case by the little part that they had been given. And so uh, the attorney on the other side let a young lawyer from his office give the opening statement, just telling the jury what they believed the evidence was going to show throughout the trial. And I'll never forget this young lady who had never done an opening statement before was talking about the testimony that they were going to hear in the courtroom in the coming days. And she said, and you're going to hear out of our witnesses own sworn lips. And I thought, own sworn lips. And then I'm thinking, okay, raise your upper lip. You know, I, I just got this picture in my head um, of, of somebody raising their upper lip in order to swear to tell the truth. How are these sworn lips going to work? I just saw these courtroom or these cartoon lips all over the courtroom. You are going to hear out of their sworn lips, right? Well, why do people take oaths? They want to say, I'm here to tell the truth, that I'm willing to swear on something larger than myself, that I am going to tell the truth. Well, you might ask the question this morning, is this really relevant to me, this message that Jesus has about vows and about oaths? Is that really something that touches my life? Let me read you a phrase and see if it resonates. Fake news. Has anybody heard that in the last couple of years? Fake news, right? The, the idea is, I hear news, I don't know if it's true or false, it may depend on the person who's giving it. I don't know if it's true, I don't know if it's false. People are concerned that maybe they're not being told the truth. They're concerned that maybe what is sold as news is fake. What about wedding vows in our society where someone stands and makes vows to their spouse before God till death do us part? That is a vow to God. Often those vows are broken. What about perjury in court? It's hard to pick up the newspaper and read the news without learning about someone who has been charged with perjury because they swore to tell the truth and yet they lied. Have you ever heard a politician make a promise that they didn't fulfill? The laughter shows me that maybe you have in the past heard that. What about the college admission scandal where rich parents made their children to look like athletes to Ivy League universities when they weren't athletes and the whole idea was if we could get them on a sports team we can get them a scholarship we'll make a donation to the sports program my child will get an Ivy League education whereas if it was dependent on their ACT or SAT scores they never would have gotten in to that Ivy League university they weren't telling the truth 
Have you ever had a contractor, and I apologize if you're a contractor, I know you're busy, everybody is trying to get your services, right? Everybody needs you yesterday. But how many times have we been told, I will be there next Monday, and next Monday, and the following Monday, and the following Monday. We wonder if anyone is ever telling us the truth. My point is, the message that Jesus has is not just relevant to the scribes and the Pharisees. Christian people of all people must be people of the truth. Look at our, our, our passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. To those of old, you have heard it said, back in the old days, back when the law was given, this is what you heard from Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The point of the law restated by Jesus is clear, isn't it? If you make a vow to the Lord, keep it. If you swear an oath to man, keep your word. Be characterized by someone who tells the truth. Look further here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. You have heard it said, and then Jesus extends it, and he says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now let's stop for a second. Wait a second. I thought we were going to talk about vows and oaths today. And Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, don't take an oath at all. Some religious denominations have concluded, based upon this passage, that you should never walk into a courtroom and swear to tell the truth. Jesus said, don't take an oath at all. But is that what it is really saying. I think we're going to see that that is not the point of what Jesus was trying to tell the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, when you come to a principle in Scripture, it needs to agree with the other places in Scripture where that principle is discussed. Scripture has a unity. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God is a God of truth. God is not a God of contradiction. All scripture must be read together. Let me read you some scripture about taking vows and oaths. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13 it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. They were being told in the law that you should swear by the name of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him and by his name you shall swear. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16, the prophet Isaiah said, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, 
And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, raising his right hand to God, says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was raising his right hand to God and says, you can believe me. I love God's people. I love the Jewish people. I wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ so that they could know Christ in his righteousness. And he says, the Holy Spirit is my witness. So all throughout Scripture, we see people taking oaths. We see oaths being required under the law. Paul, many times in the New Testament, talks about taking oaths. So is Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, never make a vow to God and never take an oath? I don't think that's what he's saying. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce says this, Jesus was speaking not against oaths themselves, but against the abuses of oaths and the corresponding abuse of the truth that went with them. I think the context of Matthew chapter 5 between verses 33 to 37 will make this crystal clear. Dr. Boyce again says, In Jesus' day, the taking of oaths had been greatly abused and it had come about that the practice was actually weakening the cause of the truth rather than contributing to it. In other words, when you're an oath-taking, vow-making liar, how many times does it, ha- does it take before someone lies to us that we raise the question, well, wait a second, they just raised their right hand and swore to God that they were telling me the truth and it turns out they lied. People will only do that so many times until you say, well, wait a second, your vow doesn't mean anything. Your oath doesn't mean anything. You're an oath-taking, vow-making liar. And Jesus says it shouldn't be like this. In their commentaries on this passage, both Alfred Plummer and John MacArthur, along with Dr. Boyce, whom I just quoted, said there were two problems going on at the time that caused Jesus the need to raise this subject with the scribes and the Pharisees. One was frivolous swearing, and the second was evasive swearing. Well, what's frivolous swearing? Frivolous swearing is taking an oath when it was not necessary, nor was it proper. Now, let me illustrate frivolous swearing for a second. Remember when you were a kid? and you were trying to convince somebody that you were going to tell the truth, remember this one? I just remembered this one when I was preparing this sermon. Cross my heart, hope to die. Does anybody know the end of it? Yes, stick a needle in my eye. I said that to somebody. They said, I've never heard that before. I'm like, that's an essential part of this. You can cross your heart and hope to die, but unless you stick the needle in the eye, it doesn't work, let me tell you. When you're a little kid 
and you want to frivolously convince somebody, and usually the intent is, I'm not telling the truth at all, but I'm really trying to tell them that I am telling the truth, you're frivolously swearing. And when we talk about swearing here, we're talking about swearing an oath. We're not talking about using a bad word, right? Like we would talk about in our culture. Frivolous swearing is when you're taking an oath on something that doesn't need an oath. When you step into a courtroom, it is very appropriate to raise your right hand and take an oath to God. But when you're doing a daily exchange between people, you don't need to take an oath. And the Pharisees and the scribes were taking oaths on everything. And they were swearing on everything. And because they were not known or characterized by the truth, instead of people believing in the truth, they actually were led astray because these people were oath-taking, vow-making liars. So that was frivolous swearing. What about evasive swearing? Again, I take us all back to our childhood. Remember when you were trying to convince somebody of the truth of something, but you were really lying? What did your conscience allow you to do? Cross, who said that? Cross your fingers, right? And you can't just cross your fingers. What do you have to do? You have to put it behind your back, right? I'm telling you the truth. And inside, I can remember this logic going by in my head. It's okay to lie as long as you cross your fingers and put it behind the back. If they were really interested, you would tell your friend or your brother or your sister, let me see your fingers. That wasn't enough because what would you do next? Cross your toes. You people were a bunch of liars when you were kids, right? That's the problem. You were crossing your fingers and putting them behind your back or you were showing your fingers and you were crossing your toes or you could take it one step further and I had my fingers and my toes crossed in my mind, right? You say, Chris, you were the liar when you were a kid if you know all of this. There was frivolous swearing and there was evasive swearing. Instead of swearing by God's name, some would swear on their life, on their health, by their head, by the earth, by heaven, by the temple, and even by Jerusalem. You see, the Pharisees would hold themselves to some oaths. I mean, if you use certain words, you're certainly held by it. But if you used other oaths, you were free to forget that oath and just like you were crossing your finger and putting it behind your back, you didn't have to carry through your word. Well, what did Jesus have to say about evasive swearing? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, because Jesus, in no uncertain terms, deals with the Pharisees on this issue in Matthew chapter 23. In verse 16, Jesus says this, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound to his oath. You can swear by the temple, nothing. You don't have to keep your word. You're free to just speak falsehood. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, now that's crossing a line. You can't do that. What does he say to them? You blind fools, 
Jesus, what did you really think of them, right? You blind fools, you hypocrites, you whitewashed sepulchers. He's very, very direct with him. He says, which is greater, the gold of the temple that is, or, or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, no exceptions. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, no exceptions. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. In other words, what Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, the truth is everything. There is no way to shade the truth. There is no protective mechanism that you can employ where you can speak something and it's a lie and you can call it the truth. It is either true or it's false. There is no in-between. John MacArthur summarizes the statement this way. But what he's saying is this, God is in control of your head. Whenever you touch heaven, you touch God. You touch earth, you touch God. You touch Jerusalem, you touch God. Touch your head, you touch God. He's all and in all. You can't avoid God. There aren't any little compartments where you lie over here and you speak truth over here. There's no sacred and secular. There's no way to evade it. You're not telling the truth in church and lying in your business. You can't separate those categories. God is in all and in all. And whenever you vow a vow and swear to tell the truth, you invoke God. As believers, whenever we speak, we ought to be speaking the truth. Folks, you cannot say when I'm in church speaking to Christian people, I will tell the truth. But in my business, if I need to shade it a little bit in order to get ahead, that's okay. There's no difference between the secular and the sacred. Why? Because it all takes place in, in the world before the God of the universe who made us. A follower of Christ must always tell the truth. So for believers, it's clear. For the scribes and the Pharisees, it's clear. There is no room for frivolous swearing over things that don't matter. There's no room for evasive swearing to get around the truth. So if we're to speak the truth, let's understand the basis of all truth. And here's why it's important. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. The writer of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now let's just stop there for a second. The thing I always like to picture in my head when I think of Hebrews chapter 6 is the God of the universe gets called to the witness stand, right? And if, if God was embodied, he goes to the witness stand and they say, would you raise your right hand and swear to t tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to so help you? Oh, 
you are God, right? There's no reason for God to swear an oath because there's no one greater than God to swear to. God is ultimate. There is no one greater than God. As human beings, we swear to something greater than ourselves. But to whom does God swear? There is no one greater than Him. And folks, what is truth? Without God, there is no truth. God is the truth. God is the standard of truth. You see, God is perfect in all of His ways. Theologians say He is perfect in all of His perfections. God is completely holy and He's completely righteous. So He cannot speak a lie. He cannot speak anything but the truth because God is the standard of truth. So when God swears, he swears by himself. And what does he say to Abraham? Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is for final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, number one, in which it is impossible for God to lie, and number two, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How does the psalmist say it? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Folks, when God swears an oath, when God says he will do something, God is the standard of truth and he will do it and you can take it to the bank. There is never a need to question the word of God. God's word is truth. John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said, I am the way, the the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you want to know what truth is? Ask God. He is the truth. You say, Chris, I live in a world that says many different philosophies are true. There's many different ways to God. You take your way. I take my way. How do I know what is the truth? Let's go back to 2 Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Do you want to know what the mind of God is? Do you know, want to know what the standard of God is? Do you know what the thoughts of God is? Go to God's word. He has given you his word so that you can know the truth. Folks, we live in a world that is uncertain about so many different issues they don't know who they are anymore. They don't know who God created them to be. Our world is confused, but Community Bible Church every week has someone stand up and open the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord. Know your Bible and take it into this community because this is the truth of God. And the world needs to know the truth. And we have possession of the truth because God is truth. 
We need to take that message to the world. When I was a kid, we always sang the hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. Do you remember that? Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. When God gives a promise, I can stand on it. It doesn't matter what comes along. It doesn't matter what the fad in philosophy or spirituality is in the world. All that matters is that God is a God of truth and he keeps his promises. Well, what are some of those promises? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It would be impossible for you to repent of your sins believing that God had raised Jesus from the dead as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and you not be saved. Why? Because the promise of God in regard to salvation is true. You can stand on that promise. James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. If you need wisdom, ask of God, and he says in his word, he will give you not just a eensy-beensy bit of wisdom, he will give you massive amounts of wisdom when you ask of him. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will what? He'll flee from you. He won't just slink away. He'll run away. Resist the devil. He'll go to the lowest common denominator, somebody who's not resisting him. He's not going to mess with you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our God is an oath-taking, covenant-keeping God. And we as his people need to be like him. You see, the other side of the coin we need to discuss for a moment. If God is a God of truth, he hates lies. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Notice in that list of seven, two times lying is spoken about. God doesn't just dislike lies. It doesn't just kind of irritate him. God hates lies because God is the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses, verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. God is characterized by truth. Satan is characterized by lies. So, Let's look in Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, because Jesus fleshes out the basic point. He says, but I say to you, 
chapter 5, verse 34. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. John MacArthur says that's before Clairol, where you could change those very easily. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Think about it. If everyone in the world just told the truth, if everybody in the world could not lie, would we need to take an oath? No, there would be an impossible... That why would we take an oath if no one's going to lie? Why would we take an oath if everyone tells the truth? Jesus said, you have to take oaths because you're a bunch of oath-taking, vow-making liars. You have to take oaths. And when you take an oath, you need to be honest about it. So here's what Jesus is saying. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words... People that you deal with on a daily basis, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your business associates, the people that you do business with, the people that you meet in the community, they should know when this person tells me yes or no, it's done. It's as good as them sticking their right hand up and swearing an oath to God. If that person says they're going to do it, they are going to do it. If that person says they're not going to do it, they're not going to do it. Their yes is yes and their no is no. I can trust them. That's what Jesus is saying. So here's his point. If you make a vow to the Lord, keep it. If you take an oath, keep your word. Be honest. Don't swear frivolously. Don't swear evasively. Let your yes be yes and your no be no in order to be consistent with the character of the God of truth. This week, I want you to think about this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who followed every rule known to mankind and then made up more rules on top of that. You will not do it. Only the righteousness of Christ imputed to you will cover your sins. Let's be thankful that we serve a God of truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is quick, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we need you in our lives so that we might be like you, characterized by truth. Lord, help us to reflect your character this week. We pray in your name, Father. We love you. Amen.